You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Associate Pastor Andrew Morton. Well, friends, as many of you may already know, my wife was instrumental in my conversion. Now, before I go any further, I'd better clarify what I mean when I say that. After all, conversion can take place in different ways and on different levels. When we as Christians talk about conversion, we usually are referring to our conversion to Christ when we receive the good news and become his followers. But conversion can also describe any other change of mind or a change of direction where once we were going one way, but something has gotten our attention and now we're going in another way. So in this instance, when I say that my wife was instrumental in my conversion, it's not my conversion to Christianity that I'm talking about. It's a different conversion. It's my conversion to coffee. Now, I I grew up in an unbelieving home as far as coffee is concerned. It wasn't part of my family culture. I grew up as a bit of a coffee skeptic, in fact. For the life of me, I couldn't understand what the appeal was. I didn't care for it. I didn't understand why other people would care for it. On those very rare occasions when I happened to go into a coffee shop, which usually happened because I was part of a group of people who all wanted to go and I couldn't figure out how to weasel my way out of it without coming across as a jerk, when that happened, I was that guy who always ordered hot chocolate instead of coffee. It was not part of my life, and I couldn't think of any reason why it ought to be. And then I found a reason, and that reason's name was Mary. As some of you may know, she was born and raised near Seattle, coming from a family that was very devout with respect to coffee. And she couldn't understand why anyone wouldn't like coffee. So after she met me and we were part of a student ministry team together in college, I became one of her projects. And to make a long story short, that project was very successful from her point of view. Now, I drink more coffee than she does, and I drink it strong and black, which she doesn't do. She has said on more than one occasion that I happen to be her greatest convert. Now, why do I tell this story? I I tell you this story to invite you to think with me about what it's like when there is something that's important to you, something that's a big part of your life, something that maybe you can't imagine your life without And there are people in your life that you know are missing out on that. That was Mary's point of view when she got to know me. And she saw from her perspective what I was missing out on. She knew how enjoyable coffee could be. And she knew that there's a whole world of flavor, of experience, and of caffeination that I was not experiencing. So she wanted to open that world up to me so that we could share it together. Many of you have perhaps felt the same way. That kind of feeling is the impulse behind wanting to introduce your friends to your favorite television show. It's the impulse behind wanting to take your family on a vacation to a place that holds special significance for you. That's the reason why perhaps you have been eager at different points in your life to introduce your children or your grandchildren to some of your favorite games or pastimes. 
That's the reason why if you find a good restaurant, you want to take someone to that and share that experience with them again. If you read a good book, maybe you think about who else you know who would also get a lot out of that experience. This desire to open up a whole new world to someone that we feel is missing out is also the impulse behind our passage for this morning. As we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews, we arrive at another one of those places in this letter slash sermon when the author of Hebrews interrupts his own train of thought to issue a warning to his listeners. And in this case, the warning is, hey, everyone, you're missing out on something. There's a whole world of meaning that you are not participating in, and I don't want you to miss out on this any more than you have to. What is this world of meaning? What is it that the author wants us to share in? It is the glorious world of knowing God more and more deeply, of getting to know him more rigorously, and more intimately. As we shall see this morning, the beautiful truth of Scripture is that God wants to be known by us. But sadly, something else is true, and that's that we don't always want to know God as much as he wants to be known by us. And in fact, most of the time, we don't. But by God's grace, Jesus calls us to shake off our complacency and to grow up into a deeper walk with him. That's what we will see this morning. Now, underlying our passage today is this central idea that God wants to be known by us. Now, I, I suspect that to most of you here, this isn't particularly surprising to hear. This is a simple statement. You've heard things like that before. But at the same time, when we stop and when we really think about the enormity of what that means, this is a staggering truth. Few truths are more profound or more life-changing than this. Christianity teaches that there exists a God, the God, the creator and the ruler of all things, and God wants to be known. He wants to be known by you. In fact, he has known you and he has loved you from before the foundations of the world. And he yearns to be known by you and for you to return his love. He wants this to happen so much that in the fullness of time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase you from the grave and to bring you out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of glorious light. In fact, it's worth pointing out that this truth, that the God who is, wants to be known, and so has spoken and has acted decisively through Jesus, this truth happens to be the launching point for the entire book of Hebrews. If you think back to where we started in this journey of Hebrews, what's the very first thing that the author tells us? Chapter 1, verse 1, we find this. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. There's a God who's speaking. But verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Who is the son? Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus shows us who God the father is sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Hebrews begins with a starting point that there's a God 
who has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And this son has not only come to tell us what God is like and to show us God's love, he has put the radical love of God into action by redeeming us from our sins and our brokenness. Why would he do this? So that we can be in a relationship with him. So that we can know him. As human beings, we all have this desire, this longing to be known. Even if you are an introvert like me, you still want to have at least a few people in your life who know you, who understand you, who, who get you, and who accept you, even though they know who you really are. And I believe that this is one of the ways that we bear the image of God. We want to be known because we are made in the image of a God who wants to be known. And, and God is known. He is known among himself in the Trinitarian community. Each of the three persons of the Trinity fully knows and fully cherishes the other persons. So, so God is not at all lacking in this area, but God is so abundant, so overflowing, and so generous in his desire to know and to be known that he wants to extend this to his creatures as well. So he wants us to know him and to be known by him. Knowing God is the greatest pursuit of our lives. It's the reason why we exist. Nothing is more important than knowing him. As Presbyterians, we affirm this in our doctrinal statements. How does the Westminster Shorter Catechism begin? It opens by asking this question. What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose for which we were made? It's this our chief end, our main purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, this is knowing language. This is relational language. We cannot do this if we don't know God. Our ability to glorify him and our ability to enjoy him can't happen without knowledge of who he is and how we can know him. So we can't fulfill our purpose without pursuing greater knowledge of who God is and a deeper intimacy with his desires for our lives. Nothing is greater than this. This is the reason why we exist. And, and no one is exempted from this. Knowing God as much as we can is part of everyone's job. And, and no one ever outgrows this. Knowing God is a lifelong journey. Even more than that, it's an eternal journey. It's a kind of journey that takes us through this life into the life of the world to come. How long are we to glorify and enjoy him? Forever, without end. What an amazing journey that is. Always going deeper, always going further, always knowing God more and more. Now, it's worth pointing out that this kind of knowing involves more than just intellectual knowledge. This is a full-orbed experiential knowledge. It's a kind of rela relational knowledge that engages all of who we are, our head, our hearts, and our hands. We know him, we love him, we serve him. But while we affirm that knowing God is more than intellectual knowledge, it is certainly not less than that. Our hearts and our hands, for example, can't be engaged in knowing God if our heads aren't also part of the equation. The book of Hebrews casts a vision of the Christian life that is a full head, heart, and hands vision. 
But our main passage today, when we get to the end of chapter 5, focuses mainly on the head. And since the text sets the agenda for what we focus on, then today we're going to focus mostly about loving him with our mind. But don't forget that the heart and the hands are just as important. We don't want to be brain-in-a-jar Christians, but we don't want to be brainless Christians either. In fact, we can't afford to be if we're going to have a meaningful walk with the Lord. We can't develop the spiritual muscles of our hearts and of our hands for service if we aren't also developing the spiritual muscles of our minds. And that's why we need things like theology. Our relationship with God has to be based on true knowledge of who he is, knowledge of what he is like, knowledge of what he has done to save us, and knowledge of what he desires for us. Otherwise, we're just wandering around in the dark. The 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards, who is considered actually by many to be the greatest thinker that America has ever produced, he described theology to his congregation this way. He said divinity, which is the word they used more often for theology in those days, divinity is commonly defined the doctrine of living to God. And by some who seem to be more accurate, the doctrine of living to God by Christ. It comprehends all Christian doctrines as they are in Jesus and all Christian rules per directing us in living to God by Christ. There is nothing in divinity, he says, no one doctrine, no promise, no rule, but what some way or other relates to the Christian and divine life or our living to God by Christ. They all relate to this in two respects, viz, or in other words, as they tend to promote our living to God here in this world in a life of faith and holiness, and also as they tend to bring us to a life of perfect holiness and happiness in the full enjoyment of God hereafter. Now, there's a lot there. Imagine being in Jonathan Edwards' congregation and hearing him preach that on a Sunday morning. But, but notice what he's saying. There's a lot of that Westminster terminology. He's talking about happiness. He's talking about enjoying God forever. It's also a Christ-centered vision. It's living for God, so it's application, but it's living for God in Christ, that Jesus is at the center of how we think and how we live. Now, according to Edwards, we ought to pursue this knowledge of living to God in Christ passionately because knowing God is the greatest treasure that anyone could ever find. Edwards goes on to say, but that treasure of divine knowledge, which is contained in the scriptures and is provided for everyone to gather to himself as much of it as he can, is a far more rich treasure than any one of gold and pearls. How busy, he says, are all sorts of men all over the world in getting riches. But this knowledge is a far better kind of riches than that after which they so diligently and laboriously pursue. If you want to really be wealthy, if you want to have the greatest treasure, Edward says, accumulate the treasure of knowing God. The amazing thing is that this treasure is available at our fingertips. It's out there for everyone to access, and there is more than enough for everyone to be rich in this treasure. But while it's out there, while we just have to reach for it, so much of the time we choose instead to remain poor. For the tragic truth is this, that even though 
Even though God longs to be known by us, we don't actually want to know God as much as he wants us to know him. Our relationship with God tends to be one-sided. Apart from his grace at work in our lives, we're just not that into him. He invites us to go deeper in our knowledge of his truth, which will enable us to love him more and serve him more passionately. But we tend to stall out before we get that far. This brings us to our main passage today as we continue working through now the end of the fifth chapter of Hebrews. This comes on the heels of what Pastor Aaron shared with us last week about how Jesus is our great high priest. Now, if you found that this teaching last week was deep, that it was challenging, that you had to work hard to keep up with it, then you are not alone. The author of Hebrews could tell that his listeners were struggling to digest the meaty spiritual truths that he was serving up for them. Now, now he's just getting warmed up, but he can tell that he is about to lose his listeners. So now he points that out. And you can sense a little bit of frustration, perhaps, or disappointment in his tone. Because he knows that they are not going to be able to handle the kind of spiritual food that he wants to feed them. Picking up at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we read this. We have much to say about this. And again, this is Jesus, our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food, he says, is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The author uses this analogy of milk and solid food to show his listeners the difference between where they are now and where they ought to be. They should be mature in their faith. He describes what the mature are like in verse 14. They are those who have put their knowledge to use. They have trained themselves. They have sharpened their spiritual understanding. So now they have greater discernment. They can differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. They don't get sucked into distractions. They're not easily fooled or led astray by false teaching. They're not swayed by the fads and trends of the moment. They're not sidelined by temptations or missional drift. But to be active and mature in our Christian lives requires a level of spiritual fuel that is meaty, that is substantial, that is rich in nutrients, that is able to sustain us through deserts, through valleys, through spiritual battles. But the problem is the Hebrews haven't developed the capacity to digest this kind of food yet. They're not there. Instead, they're like babies that still need to be weaned off of a liquid diet when they should be eating steak and potatoes. They're still milk drinkers. Now, how does the author of Hebrews describe spiritual milk drinkers? Well, he says, first of all, in verse 11, they are dull hearers, as some translations say. Now, that doesn't mean that they're unintelligent. It means that they're not putting forth the effort. They no longer try to understand 
as the translation that we just read says. In addition to being poor listeners, they also have a poor spiritual memory. They've forgotten the truths that they have been taught. They're not of any benefit to those around them. The expectation is that every Christian will grow in their knowledge of Scripture so that they can share that knowledge with others, so that they can teach those who aren't as far along on the journey. But these particular Christians that we read about here, instead of passing on what they have learned, they need to go back to the beginning and learn it all over again. Not only are they unable to help others, they're unskilled and they're inexperienced in handling the word of truth for themselves. This means that their growth has been stunted and they are left vulnerable to dangers, to false teachers, to spiritual attacks. The reformer John Calvin describes how we need to train ourselves with scripture in order to be prepared for life's spiritual battles. He says, we are ever to strive until we be in every way furnished by God's word and be so armed for battle that Satan may by no means steal upon us with his fallacies. It's kind of a different way of talking, but he's saying the less time we spend in scripture, the more unprepared we're going to be and the more of a target we're going to make. Michael Kruger summarizes the spiritual condition of these Hebrew listeners by saying, our author's readers are not listening. They are lazy, numb, and checked out when they should hear the word, the theology that the writer is giving them. They are not interested in understanding God's plan of salvation and how Jesus is the greatest high priest. And it is a sign, he says, of spiritual unhealth in a person when they hear theology and good doctrine and say, who cares? Now, lest we look down our noses and think that we are better than they were, pastor and writer Richard D. Phillips reminds us that we are not so different after all. He says the recipients of this letter were like many Christians today who think that theology is a waste of time. What difference does it make, people ask, whether God is a trinity or not? whether Christ's righteousness comes by imputation or by infusion, and whether regeneration comes before faith or after. What is important, they say, is that we get along with each other. Then they cite passages commending a childlike faith as if that were the same as a childish faith, that is, one that is indifferent to or ignorant of the Word of God. This attitude, Philip says, is so prevalent today that perhaps the majority of professing believers try to nourish themselves on the weak diet of milk alone. Not that there is anything wrong with milk. It is just that those who are no longer babies require a stronger diet if they are to grow. Yet we are living at a time when most church members are immensely ignorant of the Bible and its doctrines. Evangelicals heartily agree that the Bible is true, but they simply don't take time to learn what it teaches. Phillips goes on to say, no wonder then that the secular culture is unimpressed by teachings in which we ourselves are so disinterested. I don't know about you, but it stings to hear that. It's convicting to hear that, even for me, because it reminds us that there are so many other things that we end up prioritizing ahead of knowing the Word of God 
ahead of going deeper in our faith. We spend so much time on things that aren't of eternal significance and often lead, leave the things that really matter most as an afterthought. So, so why is this? Why are we so disinterested? What are some things that contribute to the spirit of complacency? Well, I, I think there are a lot of factors that, that lead to this. But aside from our human sin and spiritual apathy that we all are vulnerable to, here are a few other factors that are helpful to be aware of. One factor is anti-intellectualism, which tends to view the life of the mind with suspicion. Anti-intellectualism sees scholarship and learning as something that is at best unnecessary to vibrant Christian faith, or at worst an actual hindrance to it. Now, often going with the spirit of anti-intellectualism is an assumption that, that deep faith and deep thinking are not friends, that they don't go well together. But this isn't true. This isn't biblical. And not surprisingly, Christian scholars have tried to push back against this mindset and call other Christians to be serious about faith and learning. The leading Christian historian Mark Knoll, for instance, opens his landmark volume, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, by lamenting the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Now, we might hear these words and we might think, Mark Knoll, you meanie, how could you say something like that? Don't you believe what we believe? And Mark Knoll actually would say, yes, he's a Presbyterian. He's an evangelical Presbyterian. He values and cherishes the same things we do. And yet he challenges us to think more deeply about our faith, to cultivate more and more learning about Christ. According to him, this scandal comes at a high price because if we fail to invest in the intellectual aspects of our faith, we don't end up being more biblical, we become less biblical. We become more vulnerable to the spirit of the age without even realizing it. We become more shaped by culture and by our earthly desires than we are by timeless truths. And that's why he says, unlike their spiritual ancestors, modern evangelicals have not pursued comprehensive thinking under God. That's what we want to do. We want to think comprehensively about the world under God, submitting to his lordship. Or, he says, have sought a mind shaped to its furthest reaches by Christian perspective. That's what we want to be shaped by. We want to be shaped by our faith. We want to be shaped by a biblical worldview, not by culture, not by politics, not by consumerism, not by other things, but by scripture. Jonathan Edwards slams anti-intellectualism on the grounds that what makes us as humans different from the animals is the fact that we have the ability to understand on a deeper level. That God has given us minds, he's given us souls, he's given us the ability to reason. And so if he has given this to us, then he expects us to use it. And what better use could there be for our God-given intellect than to apply it to knowing the very God who gave it to us? When Jesus said that we're commanded to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he meant it. If we leave out loving God with all of our minds, then we're not really loving him fully. We're missing out on an important part of our discipleship. A second factor that can contribute to this kind of complacency is theological minimalism. Well, well what is that? Uh, that's basically the attitude that says, I'm going to focus 
on just the big ideas of the Christian faith and treat everything else as if it's optional. When it comes to knowing God and knowing Scripture, Christians, however, should not settle for the minimum requirements. For example, in my marriage, if I put forth only a minimum effort to understand my wife, she would not be particularly impressed by that. So if I would not try that with her, why would I try that with God? If God has decided to reveal truth to us in the Bible, we should at least make an effort to understand it. Ironically, sometimes we express more of a desire in trying to master the truths that God hasn't told us than we do in trying to understand the truths that he has told us. In the end, theological minimalism leads to discipleship minimalism. As Richard D. Phillips again points out, he says, if you say, so long as I love Jesus, it doesn't matter what else I believe, then you will never grow in your faith, in your character, or in your usefulness to God. Now, now, Richard Phillips, before he came to know the Lord, was a tank commander in the U.S. Army, and you can kind of see a little bit of that uh, intensity coming through. He does not hold any punches. He says it like it is. A third factor that can also undermine our interest in spiritual knowledge is the influence of our consumerist culture. We're told to do what feels good. We're told to pursue what makes us happy. We're told to avoid boredom and to maximize pleasure. And like most forms of exercise and discipline, growing in our knowledge of God demands a lot from us. It is hard work. It doesn't always bring us short-term enjoyment. But once more, Richard Phillips calls us out on this way of thinking. He puts it bluntly. He says, in other words, theology bores today's Christians, which is another way of saying that we are bored with God himself except as he feeds our consumer needs. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be true for me. I don't want to see God as just the vending machine to get what I want. I want to see him as my greatest treasure. I don't want to be bored with him or with what he calls me to know about him. This consumer mindset can be costly to our faith. Bible scholar Thomas Hewitt explains that we cannot stand still. We can't just coast in our knowledge of spiritual things. Like so many other aspects of learning, if we don't use it, we are likely to lose it. He says this habit of spiritual apathy towards the things of God not only hinders progress, but produces retrogression. We go backwards. He says it is impossible for the mind to stand still when dealing with the utterances of God. If the dark things, he means the things we don't understand, if the dark things do not become plain, then the plain things will become dark. In other words, if we're not moving forward in our knowledge of Scripture and biblical truth, we're moving backwards. A fourth and final factor that we'll look at that can discourage us from rigorously studying Scripture is, is the tendency that I think we have in a lot of areas of our life to, to outsource in this case, to outsource our learning. In other words, we look at the Bible and we look at theology and we think, you know, I don't really need to know this. doesn't apply to me. Um, after all, that's what pastors are for. Uh, that's what theology nerds are for. That's why we pay Aaron and Andrew the big bucks. They'll do the heavy lifting. They'll tell me what I need to know. It's a nice arrangement. And if I have any questions, I'll come to them, let them figure it out. And while that mindset can seem to work well for a little while, it means we're always going to be spiritually dependent on someone else. 
And God wants us to go straight to the source. This mindset rests on the assumption that theology is irrelevant to most of us. But Jonathan Edwards reminds us that the Bible is for all Christians, not just a few experts. He says, they, the doctrines of Christianity, are about those things which relate to every man's eternal salvation and happiness. The common people cannot say, let us leave these matters to ministers and divines. Let them dispute them out among themselves as they can. They concern not us. For, he says, they are of infinite importance to every man or woman, he would say if he was writing this today. Those doctrines which relate to the essence, attributes, and subsistencies of God concern all, as it is of infinite importance to common people as well as to ministers to know what kind of being God is. For he is the being who hath made us all, in whom we live and move and have our being, who is the Lord of all, the being to whom we are all accountable, is the last end of our being and the only fountain of our happiness." I want you to be able to approach the fountain of happiness for yourself, not wait for me or someone else to bring you a little Dixie cup full of the water from the fountain of happiness. I want you to be able to dive in and to delight in what God has for you. Edwards concludes by saying, there is no doctrine of divinity, we would say theology, whatever, which doth not some way or other concern the eternal interest of every Christian. None of the things which God hath taught us in his word are needless speculations or trivial matters. All of them are indeed important points. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to argue with the guy who's said to be the greatest mind America has ever produced on this point. I think he's on to something here. But, but listen, don't hear me say this and think, well, Andrew, that's easy for you to say because this is stuff that you like and you're telling us that you have to like it too. Because the fact of the matter is, we all wander from God. We all want to prioritize other things. It's just as true in my life as yours. I might have a degree in some of these things. I may know more facts about these things, but that doesn't mean that they always captivate my attention the way that they should. There are plenty of times where I might see a book about practical things, or I might hear a podcast, or there's something that I need to hear to feed my soul. And what do I do? I turn to something else. And I say, God, I don't want to do that right now. I'd rather do this. I'd rather have a snack. I'd rather watch the show. I'd rather play Lord of the Rings Risk against myself as all four players. Fill in the blank. I tend to run from this as much as anyone else. So hear me say this, not as someone speaking over you, but as someone saying, I know what it's like to have this well of deep truth there and to not go to it. But I've at least gone to it enough to know that there's something for all of us. And so let us all press on. Let us all embrace this journey. Even though we may struggle to grow in our knowledge of spiritual things, and even though we may struggle sometimes to even want to grow in our knowledge of spiritual things, Jesus wants so much more for us. He knows that there is more for us to discover. He knows that there is such a great adventure ahead of us. He doesn't want us to miss out, so he invites us to go deeper. Even now, he is calling us to shake off our complacency and grow up into a deeper walk with him. After the author of Hebrews calls out and critiques his listeners for their lack of knowledge and for the fact that they're still milk drinkers, he doesn't leave it there. He urges them to take the next steps, 
so that they can grow toward a more mature faith. Continuing at Hebrews 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts which lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and an eternal judgment. Verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. Now, maybe you read that list of elementary matters and you think, wow, that still sounds pretty deep to me. Uh, But in these verses, he is urging his listeners and he's urging us to move beyond what he says are the elementary things, the the ABCs towards something that's more advanced. Now, these elementary teachings are repentance, faith, cleansing rites, laying on of hands, teachings about the doctrines of resurrection and judgment, uh, these are likely the kinds of topics that new converts would be taught during their time of instruction before they would officially join the church. It's actually a lot like our confirmation classes or our Explore Presby classes where you learn some of the foundational teachings of Christianity before you say, yes, I want to commit. I want to officially be a part of this. But when the apostle talks about moving beyond these things, is he saying that, well, they're kind of important, but they don't really matter. We can forget them. No, instead, he he uses the language of laying a foundation. Now, Now think about it. You don't build a foundation and then walk away and build your building somewhere else. And at the same time, you don't build a foundation. Just say, wow, that's a beautiful foundation. Would it be nice if there was a building there someday, but for now, we're we're just going to really enjoy this foundation. No, the foundation is there for you to build upon it. And so he invites us to do that. And to neglect these things or to leave them there would be, in the words of Philip Edgecombe Hughes, like this. It would be like leaving the elementary doctrines. To leave the elementary doctrines does not mean to despise or abandon them any more than a pupil who has learned the ABCs can then dispense with the alphabet. You learn the alphabet, and then you use it for a whole lifetime of learning. In the same way, these elementary truths of the Christian faith are the foundation for a lifetime of exploring deeper. Now, how do we build on this foundation? We do this by being disciples of Jesus. A disciple, we think of as a follower, but really it means a student, a learner. We learn in the school of Christ as we follow and serve him. So instead of being complacent to know just the essentials of salvation, let us diligently apply ourselves to learn as much as we can about what God has revealed in his word. Here are just a few things that all of us can do. And we don't have to do them in the same way. Do them as God leads you to do them. But number one, surprise, surprise, spend time in Scripture. Spend time in Scripture. Read it. Read it regularly. Read it carefully. Take your time. If you can't manage to read, or if you're more of an auditory person, then then listen to it. Turn on an audio Bible to listen to that as you drive, while you're doing the dishes, or when you're getting ready for the day. Soak yourself in God's Word on a regular basis. We can't grow without that. Number two, in addition to the Bible, read or or listen to other books that will add to your knowledge of the Bible. You know, theology books aren't as scary as they may seem to be. You can pick one up or pick up a Bible commentary. 
We have a few copies of the Michael Kruger Hebrews book out there. Take one of those home. Read it. Learn from it. Listen to an audiobook on prayer or another spiritual discipline. Cue up a podcast to fill some empty time in your schedule. Did you know that we as a church actually have our own podcasts? You can go wherever you get your podcasts. For some of you, maybe you don't, but, uh, but they're out there on Spotify or Google or iTunes where you can listen to old sermons or you can listen to some of the panel conversations that we've recorded with our pastors or Sunday school teachers or elders walking through the New City Catechism, explaining Christian doctrine, wrestling with that, asking questions. That's out there for any of you to find and to listen to. We would love for you to engage with that. But do something to listen, to read, to learn. Number three, don't just learn by yourself, but learn in community. We have so many opportunities for this. Come to a Connection Hour class. Join us on Thursday evening to read and talk about Dane Ortland's book, Deeper. Come for one of our weekly Bible studies. Ladies, come on Saturday for that Bloom event. Number four, talk about spiritual things. If you choose to spend connection hour talking with people, then talk about your faith. Ask someone what God has been teaching them lately. In your day-to-day conversations, share the latest aha moment that you had with God. Ask the person that you're talking to how you can pray for them and tell them how they can pray for you. And number five, do this with the Lord. Ask God to bless and to guide your study of his word. When you start, ask him, Lord, what do you want me to hear? Maybe it's just one thing, one thing that he has for you that day, that he has put that in front of you for you to be encouraged and strengthened and grow. Ask him to lead you. Pray through the words of scripture. Allow the doctrinal truths that you learn to inform your praise and your worship. Ask Jesus to help you put into practice the things that you learn. Maybe you could journal about it. Maybe you could summarize it. Talk about it with your kids or with your spouse, or with someone else. If you spend your time in search of more and more knowledge of God, you will never run out. There is always more. This is a lifelong journey. This well will never run dry. You will never grow bored. You will never grow stagnant in your faith as long as you keep pursuing after him. Knowledge of these things can bring you satisfaction and joy. This kind of knowledge is practical and it's useful. By growing in your knowledge of the Lord, all Christians can know God better. We can be better prepared to withstand spiritual attack. We can weather the storms of life. Well, what does this look like? It can look like so many different things. When I think of this, I think of Gus Sedaris, who in his final years was teaching. He was leading Bible study after Bible study for as long as he could. I think of Liz Kelly, who even as her health was declining, she wanted to read She asked her daughter to bring one last book. What was that book? It was a commentary on the book of Romans because she wanted to spend her final days learning more, reading more about Jesus and about the hope that he brings to us. Who else do I think of? I think of Lane Anderson, who ended his life as an elder of this church, that even in his final months, he was involved in strategic planning in coordinating global missions efforts and investing in the kingdom of God. But you don't have to be that age either. I think of people like Megan McFarland who are younger than most of us, but running full throttle to know the Lord and sink their teeth into Scripture. I think of our teachers who are learning and growing so that they can teach. 
I think of the people who work with our kids in the nursery or on Wednesday nights who are investing, who maybe don't feel that they have a lot of knowledge, but what they have, they're pouring out into others. I think of so many of you who in different ways, day in and day out, are seeking to make God your greatest treasure. And I want to encourage you to keep doing that. If you've stalled or if you have slowed down, then keep going. Let's do it together. Let's not give up. Let's not grow weary. Let's not grow bored. Let us pursue Christ with everything we've got. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize, Lord, that you are the greatest treasure that we can have. Yet sometimes, Lord, we struggle. We get distracted by other things. Lord, we focus more on our kingdoms than on your kingdom. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes, Lord, we may feel like a failure. But remind us that you are there, that you love us, that you know us, and that you invite us to come to you. Lord, would you stir within us a holy discontentment with anything less than knowing you with every fiber of our being? Would you spur within us, Lord, to run wholeheartedly after you, that we might come to see you and to know you and to declare that there is nothing greater than that. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us, and have a blessed day.